Good afternoon and welcome to our monthly CIO House View live stream, where we will break down the latest market action, discuss the top questions facing investors, and provide you with an action plan to navigate the coming months. Now, after a strong start to the year, we have seen a turnaround in investor sentiment, with recent losses across equities, bonds, and commodities, while the dollar has strengthened. On one hand, the near-term outlook has brightened, with the economy proving to be resilient even after 450 basis points of rate hikes. But investors are once again concerned that inflation might prove to be stickier than expected, forcing the Fed to keep its foot on the gas for longer and ultimately leading to the U.S. to a later yet deeper recession. So what does this all mean for investors? Over the past year, we have seen a constantly shifting narrative in the market, from soft landing to hard landing to what some described as a no landing scenario. But rather than keeping pace with these confusing analogies, our advice to clients remains the same. The range of outcomes is wide, and we have to be much more selective in our approach. This means diversifying outside of just US growth stocks, where valuations remain rich. It means looking outside of the US altogether, where some of our favorite opportunities have emerged. And finally, right-sizing allocations in areas like fixed income, where yields are now much more attractive, and also alternative investments for that extra layer of diversification. So joining me to discuss the opportunities in all these areas today are Nadia Laval, Senior Equity Strategist, Alejo Zarvonko, Chief Investment Officer for Emerging Markets, and Dan Scanzaroli, Head of Portfolio Strategy and UBS Wealthway Solutions. We also want you to be involved in our discussion, uh, so we encourage you to use the Ask a Question button at the bottom of your screens to submit questions, and we will get to as many as possible at the end of our dialogue here. With that, um, I just want to start with you, Nadia. Um, obviously, you know, we had uh, in the immediate term, the economic growth has held up really well, better than most expected, better than certainly we expected. But at the same time, as I mentioned, um, the concerns for a deeper Fed-induced recession down the road has increased. So, you know, what do these conflicting um, narratives mean for our equity outlook? Yeah, you know, near term, you know, the market is likely to continue to cycle through these narratives, recession, no recession, reacceleration, high inflation. Um, and it's going to be sensitive to the macro data. Uh, we think that is going, it's obvious now that we are likely in an environment where rates are going to be higher for longer. The bond market clearly has sniffed that out, and we have seen a repricing so far this year in the bond market with the Fed Fund's futures market now pricing in a peak in the Fed Fund rates of about 5.5%. So it feels like monetary policy isn't significantly restrictive enough. And also, the fixed income market has removed that expectations for rate cuts in the back half of the year. On the other hand, the equity markets has basically been more grabbing on to that stronger growth in the near term and ignoring the higher inflation and higher interest rate environment. But we have seen some weakness in the market recently as they're starting to focus a little bit more on that and some of the gains that we saw in January has been given back. But we ourselves here at CIO, we too have to respond to this data. And as you mentioned, Salida, coming into the year, we had been expecting a stronger first half, inflection in the second half, 
with some recovery on the horizon. But with the consumer and the economy showing signs of resiliency, what we have done is revise up some of our near-term target. Now, Salida, it's important to note that we're not necessarily calling for an equity market to be stronger from here. What we're actually doing is, in fact, calling for an equity market that we expect to be range-bound from here through the mid of this year. So our June target for the S&P 500, we've moved up from 3,700 to 4,000. That's roughly in line with where the market is today. But Salida, wait for it, because in the back half of the year, we do think that the economy will start to feel the drag of monetary policy and demand will slow down. So we are looking for this year for the S&P earnings to actually contract about 5%. That's not yet in the consensus bottom-up estimates. They're still a bit too high. And in all fairness, it's very difficult to argue for multiple expansion from here. We now have the forward price-to-earnings multiple on the S&P at 17.5 times. That's above the longer-term average, and we are experiencing a period of high interest rates. So in the back half of the year, what we have done, we have actually trimmed our year-end price target down uh, uh, from 4,000 down to 3,800 uh, because we think that it's important to highlight and reflect that while this period of subtrend economic growth might be delayed, it isn't off the table, that the risk still remains high. Mm -hmm. And so we are a bit more cautious on the back half of the okay. year. So Nadia, you already touched upon how bond markets are pricing and the Fed's rhetoric of higher for longer. Um, so from that perspective, how do you think about the rate outlook? Because, of course, that's a big input that informs uh, the equity outlook. Absolutely. You know, of course, year to date, we've seen bond market volatility pick up. Of course, not as dramatic as it was last year. But what we've seen is that the short end of the curve has repriced to sort of reflect that hotter uh, inflation environment, that harkish trend. And as I mentioned earlier, the fact that interest rates will probably move higher and the repricing of the Fed's funds future market, as I mentioned, now looking for a peak rate of five and a half percent. You know, that's actually now above what the Fed expectation is. Remember, when we got the Fed dots in December, the median dot was um, uh, pointing to a peak in the Fed funds rate about five to five and a quarter. So now the market has moved above that. Um, so we have seen sort of this whole repricing in, in, the, mar in the market that's happened. Uh, but on the, uh, the our sort of core view here at, C uh, at UBS is that we do have a view that's more in line with the futures market. We do expect another 25 basis points increase in the March meeting, also in the May meeting, as well as in the June meeting. But again, all of this is data dependent, and as the data comes in, we have to uh, continue to assess. What, when we think about the long end of the curve, so that is the 10-year yield, um, Treasury yield, that actually has been range-bound. It's been trading in a sort of 35 to 4% range since November. Now, today, we did pace through that 4% range, and we could start to approach that 2022 peak that we saw on the 10-year of 4.3%. But again, as I noted, when we get in the back half of here, we do expect the longer end of the curve to pull back in. You know, we expect the slow slowdown in the economy to pull rates back down, and we expect the yield on the 10-year to approach something closer to 3% by the end of the year. 
But what we have done in portfolios is that we appreciate the, uh, the, the increase that we have seen on the long end of the curve. And so with long end moving up, we've actually, from a portfolio positioning standpoint, add a little bit to duration to capture mm -hmm. that extra yield. Got it. So expectations lower in the equity market at, at, at a high level uh, in the U.S. equity market towards the end of this year. In the near term, bonds might overshoot even beyond the levels that we've seen today. But uh, with the slowing economy, sort of in tandem with a uh, decline I mean equity markets, you know, a, a lower interest rate environment, at least on the 10 year part of the curve, because we don't expect any cuts in the Fed funds uh, to play out. Um, Nadia, you know, I just want to finish up with you in terms of positioning uh, in the environment that you just um, outlined. I mean, I think it's clear that this is really not the time uh, to, mark, you know, to make broad risk on or risk off calls. There are some opportunities here and there, but then the overall market you talked about, the, the um, risk reward is not all that attractive and selectivity will be critical. Uh, so which sectors or styles do, do you believe um, that look attractive right now within the United States? And do you still have the same level of conviction around value over overgrowth? Yeah, you know, when we think about um, markets from here, absolutely, you're right. Broad base, we don't see much upside from here, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things to do under the hood and continue to resize those portfolios. So we do think that it's prudent to have some defensive exposure, also some um, offensive exposure, and really have a balance in the portfolio. So when we're thinking about defensive, we continue to like a defensive sector like um, consumer staples. Now, this is a sector we know historically tends to be resilient in an economic slowdown. And a lot of these companies are still benefiting from the price increases that they were able to pass through last year. And when you think about from a relative valuation standpoint, the valuation for consumer staples is roughly in line with its historical averages, so not too demanding. Um, on the more cyclical sort of side, we continue to favor the energy sector. Now, this is a sector that's contingent, um, somewhat interrelated with our view on oil. We are still very convicted on oil, and we think that Brent oil will push above $100 this year, towards $105 by the end of next year and into 2024. We just continue to think that the, uh, the market will tighten. We know that Russia plans to cut production this month. And so we also know that China is reopening and that's going to put upward pressure on demand. Um, Selena, when, uh, I want to highlight that this month we actually upgraded real estate to most preferred. Um, and the thinking behind that, that real estate, the bulk of the real estate sector is really now um, wireless towers as well as data centers. And we're seeing improving fundamentals in the pickup in global consumer demand, just given the demand for 5G and data overall. Uh, we also think that last year we saw the sector underperform because of the headwind, the rapid movement up in rates had put some pressure on that, on, on real estate. We think that rates will start to stabilize here, and so that headwind should start to ease. I want to round it out because on the other side of the equations of things that we aren't that optimistic about and least preferred on continues to be technology and financials. And this month, we downgraded communication services to least preferred. And our thinking behind that is that we are concerned about increasing competition within the sector, particularly as the integration of generative AI happens in this sector. There are opportunities there, of course, 
but it also means that we're going to see a pickup of an intense um, you know, investment cycle in order for those large players in the space to remain competitive. That's going to pressure margin. And we're also over, uh, overall concerned with the slowdown in the economy that the ad market might be at risk here. Now, to answer your question over value versus growth, now, again, note that the sectors that I outlined that we're least prefer for skew to the growth side. So that sort of answers the questions in itself, I hope, in the fact that we are least preferred on communication services as well as tech. And so we still continue to favor value in this environment. From a valuation standpoint, we still continue to think that growth is expensive, trading at a 10% premium above its longer-term average. And so we still have a bias towards values leader in this environment. Okay. Thanks, Nadia. And we started with Nadia with U.S. equity markets because obviously uh, in our clients' portfolios, that makes up the biggest portion uh, and we'll probably continue to do so. However, um, as we discussed, right, clearly valuations are quite elevated in the U.S. That's 17 and a half times you talked about, Nadia, right, assumes potential and expansion of earnings or maybe further cuts by Fed, none of which is in our base case scenario. That said, uh, there seems to be better opportunities uh, that are, um, you know, emerging outside of the United States, especially in emerging markets. Uh, we did upgrade uh, emerging market equities a few months back, um, and the asset class has actually been quite volatile since then. Um, but Alejo, I want to ask you, um, why do you actually still have as much conviction around um, the fact that emerging market equities cannot perform uh, moving forward? And of course, emerging markets is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a blanket name for a vast geography for a lot of countries that might be in different, having in the middle of different business cycles and has idiot, idiosyncratic uh, risks around them. So when you dissect it, where are the favorite opportunities for you with NEM? Absolutely, Salida. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I think we need to take a step back and start by recognizing that we're living in a multi-speed world. We've talked about the U.S. economy, how so far it's exhibited resilience, yet we have a Fed that has tightened monetary policy in the fastest pace in over 45 years. And there's more to come. Nadia highlighted the fact that the Fed funds might peak at five and a half, uh, with a balance of, of risk, I think, tilted to, to the upside. So we're probably going to see a slowdown in the U.S. economy in the months ahead. Simultaneously, when you think about what's going on in China, uh, the exit from zero COVID policy is still having a very sizable effect in the second largest economy in the world. This is an economy that in 2022 grew at a pace of 3% year over year. We're accelerating to over 5% year over year, and this is a big deal for a number of countries. Think about those countries that export manufacturing goods to China in North Asia, those countries that export commodities to China in Latin America, and those countries that export services in the form of tourism in Southeast Asia primarily. In addition, Europe is weathering the energy shock a little bit better than, than expected. So in this multi-speed world, I think the thesis that you highlighted in terms of looking a little bit outside of the U.S., the diversifying outside of U.S. growth stocks makes a lot of sense. Why emerging market stocks? It is hard to find a good prospect for earnings growth anywhere in the world in 2023. We do think that earnings growth in emerging markets is going to be positive this year compared to our expectation of a contraction in earnings 
both in the United States and in Eurozone equities. In addition, valuations are relatively attractive. We're talking about emerging market equities trading at 11 and a half times forward earnings. This is below 10-year averages for the asset class, and this is a 35% discount to U.S. stocks. Very meaningful, larger large than historical average, and so we think there's, there's an opportunity there. Of course, the asset class is a combination of countries. Right now, tactically, we favor China, we favor North Asian markets over other countries such as, such as India. Uh, in addition, we find opportunities in internet and e-commerce companies in, in the emerging world. Um, and I'd say the opportunity set within emerging markets is not limited to stocks. There's also a very interesting uh, sandbox in the fixed income side. Specifically, we maintain a most preferred recommendation in portfolios in dollar-denominated bonds in the emerging markets. And we do think that when you get 8.5% yield in U.S. dollars, when you think about our outlook of fairly stable spreads of the asset class vis-a-vis -vis U.S. treasuries, uh, the total return outlook is, is really not bad for um, dollar-denominated emerging market bonds. I'll wrap up by highlighting that Latin America is an area of opportunity in fixed income. You have very good quality companies across countries, across sectors, that are often unduly punished by the fact that they're located in um, riskier zip codes. Mm -hmm. But that's another area that we uh, have our eyes on. Okay, actually it's a good point that you highlighted the e-commerce and internet and emerging markets because of course, many of our clients have um, voluntarily or involuntarily have a bias towards, you know, um, uh, you know, growth sectors and portfolios, built up position technology, don't want to give up technology exposure, but they can get that at a cheaper price in emerging markets. So it's not just diversifying at a high level geographically, but still maintaining that technology um, sort of uh, bias, but at, at uh, lower cost, I guess. So um, let's talk about risks, um, Alejo, in emerging markets, because, um, you know, Obviously, the elephant in the room is that the Fed is not done yet. Um, the impact of further Fed tightening uh, on the U.S. economy, we're still debating, and we, we might see it, we talked about we might see that you know towards the end of this year, and whether this could hurt global demand and then spill over to emerging markets. Now we know that right in periods of below trend growth in the United States, emerging markets has performed uh, have performed fine. Um, but, you know, when we look at um, the periods where we actually have seen recession in the United States, the, the previous four times, we've seen negative total returns, you know, every single time in emerging markets. Um, let, can you talk to a little bit about the sort of risks within that context and what are you monitoring to make sure we don't get caught up in that? Without a doubt. I think there's no sugarcoating. A U.S. recession is not good news for emerging market equities, but I think this conclusion really applies to risk assets more broadly. Yeah. And I do think we have a mitigating factor in place in this particular cycle, which is this very artificial fact that China is swimming against the tide, right? Um, the country is flipping the, the switch on, on its economy from manufacturing the equivalent of a recession last year to allowing it to recover thanks to 
um, doing away with COVID-related restrictions. This is a big deal, right? And I think this is going to remain a tailwind, and it's going to translate into at least a less complicated outlook in case of a U.S. recession for emerging markets. We need to remember that the universe of emerging market stocks is very much biased towards Asia. When you put together the Chinese market, the Taiwanese market, and the South Korean market, this is over 60% of the emerging markets equity universe. So the geographic composition yeah. matters, particularly if you're thinking about the consequences of, of a U.S. recession. But Quite honestly, that's not the only risk that emerging market stocks and global stocks face. I would also highlight geopolitical tensions, geopolitical risks. As we all know, we're entering the second year of the war in, in Ukraine. Uh, there is no end inside, according to our analysis of battlefield trends and, of course, also diplomatic trends. But maybe more importantly, the U.S.-China bilateral relation remains quite tense. Uh, we project increasing restrictions in the technology and capital and capital flows yeah. across both countries. And this is something that we'll have to coexist with. And we do believe that geographic diversification remains one tool for yeah. you to cope with those risks. Okay, great. Uh, I want to, in the interest of time, turn to Dan. But next time I have you, Alejandro, I want to discuss this emerging concept of alternative Asia, Alt-Asia. Um, and because, uh, you know, it's hard to ignore China in this investment, but you know there are um, certainly some sensitivities around, you know, or, or uh, concerns that some of our clients have. So, where can we invest in outside of China, outside of Japan? Uh, that's going to be the next topic for us. Absolutely. Okay. Very dynamic economies in Southeast Asia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore. Happy to talk about that. All right. Perfect. All right, Dan. Uh, I want to turn over to you. Um, we got the U.S. equity view and uh, actually emerging markets view, which where we see better opportunities. Um, and we've discussed uh, in both cases where you know there's a need for selectivity. But the good news is that now we get paid to wait, right? Uh, when you know one-year Treasury, you can get five and a quarter, um, and you know. We have alternatives to equities. We have one to three-year IG bonds now offering 5.6% yield. Um, so it's not such a bad time to be waiting when you can earn an ICE yield. How should clients be thinking about um, their fixing compositioning? We are now spoiled for the first time in a very, very long time by the abundance of opportunities in high-quality fixed income. So talk through uh, how you would could kind of put a portfolio together. Yeah, it's, it's quite a shift that we've seen since last year, you know, at the, this time last year. And as you mentioned before, and Nadia mentioned, we've seen strong economic growth and momentum with persistent inflation and a tight labor market. Right now, there's about two jobs available for every job seeker. And I bring this up because we're seeing an unexpected surge in consumer strength, and that obviously increases the probability of a soft landing in the near term, but it could force the Federal Reserve to implement even more restrictive rate hikes, um, increasing the risk of a recession later. And we need to take that into consideration as we're deciding on our bond positioning. Um, altogether, this has shifted the market sediment uh, towards pricing in higher for longer Fed funds rates with the two-year yields moving up about 0.8 of a percent or 80 basis points higher in February and delaying what are the anticipated cuts until 2024. So overall, we continue to position towards high quality, short duration investment rate corporates like the ones that you mentioned that are yielding 5.6%. 
um, with less interest rate risk um, than going longer on the curve. However, with the market pricing in another 75 basis points of rate hikes and the 10-year treasury now above 4%, we see opportunities to add some interest rate risk to portfolios. Um, therefore, alongside short duration investment grade bonds, uh, we're taking a barbell approach with a preference for seven to 10 year treasuries uh, funded from US growth stocks. Um, with higher you know, repricing of rates and anticipation of the more hawkish Fed, we believe 10 year treasury yields will trend lower in the second half of the year. The barbell strategy gives an opportunity an opportunity to capture carry and potentially benefit from price appreciation from falling rates on the longer duration bond, uh, while also mitigating some of the reinvestment risks so that you can lock in those higher rates for longer term. You know, given the risk posed by a potentially more restrictive Fed policy, we still believe high yield bonds should remain least preferred in positioning. Okay, so, um, you know, I think once we move from a inflationary concerns to mainly growth concerns and where the yields are, right? Um, I believe the bonds will claim, reclaim their role in portfolios of being an anchor uh, against risk assets. But last year, right, we can't forget it so quickly, highlighted the importance of alternatives um, in an environment where inflation is elevated and stocks and bonds that, you know, are at greater risk of falling in tandem. Um, Macro hedge funds, for example, uh, were one of the very few positive stories uh, for 2022, up 9% on the year. So when you look at the hedge fund world, then, um, where are you most focused on right now? Where can we uh, find the best um, opportunities for portfolios? Well, we're focused on two aspects with hedge funds. You know, as we, we want uncorrelated alpha opportunities, outsized returns that have very low correlation in the market, but also we want that other attributes, which is to mitigate the downside risk, which is the value that we saw these uncorrelated alpha opportunities produce in portfolios for investors who held hedge funds last year. In January, managers continued to provide attractive risk-adjusted returns, even as the market was, was you know, trending fairly aggressively upward in portfolios, there's a much more attractive set of opportunities for hedge funds from the higher volatility, the trends and the inflection points, higher rates and the dispersion really between winners and losers that we're seeing. Within hedge funds, we currently do have a preference for the macro strategies that you mentioned that have acted as one of the biggest diversifiers historically in portfolios to, to mitigate downside risk during periods of poor equity performance. Um, the heightened economic and geopolitical inflection points really do provide a fertile, fertile uh, trading backdrop for them to continue to capture macroeconomic trends in both rates, commodities, as well as equities. We also like low net equity long short managers. As rates have risen, we've seen a shift in which industries and investment styles like growth and value are being rewarded. Um, and as uncertainty across equity markets globally and companies continue, um, you know, managers can continue to take long positions in overvalued stocks and short positions, you know, I'm sorry, undervalued stocks and long positions in overvalued stocks while keeping their exposure to equity trends low. And that has increased opportunities to capture mispricings in equities and changes in earnings and opportunities for in this environment with less participation in the broad equity volatility. Their low correlation to markets, it really is essential in a time when, as Nadia, Nadia mentioned, we expect range-bound equity markets. Lastly, the evolution of trends and volatility that is permeating all asset classes 
um, supports a preference for multi-strategy managers who can swiftly and effectively allocate capital to different types of high alpha opportunities in the hedge fund space through a variety of fund strategies. And so we are constructive on multi-strategy managers as well. Okay. Um, thank you. We have a couple questions from our clients that I want to make sure I fit in before we finish. But Dan, uh, briefly, can you tell us um, sort of opportunities in private markets as well? Yes, very quickly. You know, we've seen a resetting in public market valuation in companies, which has created two opportunities uh, for, for private investing. The first is value-oriented buyout strategies, where investors focus on acquiring uh, a majority control in a mature, high-quality established company that they want to take private. This strategy is positioning opportunities to potentially boost returns with companies that tend to be more resilient and defensive during economic downturns because they have solid cash flows and they're being bought. We are seeing a trend where they're being bought at about an eight and a half percent discount uh, to their 52 week high, those target companies, according to PitchBook. And so the growth potential there is in sectors like healthcare and technology, where we see that technology is able to solve for factors like the labor shortages that we're seeing. Additionally, the sell-off between stocks and bonds in 2022 resulted in many institutional investors finding themselves over-allocated to privates relative to their policy targets. Um, and because of those denominator effects of equities and bonds falling. And we currently favor secondary private equity opportunities where these institutions are turning to unwind positions, reduce those allocations because of mandate restrictions, not because of valuation challenges. The forced liquidation of these private equity strategies it gives buyers the ability to negotiate better prices for these assets to take it off the institutional books like the pension funds. And in the second half of 2022, we saw pensions increasing the discount that they were offering to get these funds off their books. These secondary transfers were about 81% of the net asset value of the companies that were being bought. Thank you. Um, uh, let me just take a couple questions uh, from clients uh, as well. Um, Nadia, I'm going to start with you. Um, can you share some of your views on the small cap? Yes, thank you. Um, so, you know, we are neutral on um, small cap. We've seen a bit of an outperformance recently in small cap. Small caps are sensitive to the economy. So with the economy remaining a little bit more resilient um, near term, it isn't surprising to see a bit of uh, a trade up in small cap. Uh, from a valuation standpoint, valuation isn't too demanding for small cap either. I mean, versus this longer term average is actually trading a little bit of a discount. So we think the risk reward is somewhat balanced here. Some of the things that we're watching during small cap that I think is bear watching, especially as we head into the back half of the year, is that small cap does have a high exposure to a floating rate debt. And as we talked about earlier, short-term rates are moving up and rates are likely going to be higher for longer. So that could be a drag from an interest expense standpoint for small cap. And also, you know, if the economy does slow down further in the back half of the year, which is sort of what we're looking for at this point, um, we could see the top line for small cap as in sales slow down as well. At the same time, you have interest rate um, expense going up and, um, and higher costs altogether, and that could squeeze margin. So these are some of the things that we're watching around small cap, and we think you need to be mindful about. But from a valuation standpoint, things aren't too, too demanded. So near term, we could see small cap continue to move up a little bit more, especially if the macro data remains resilient. Okay. 
Great, thanks so much. Uh, and Alejo, um, obviously emerging markets and commodities are uh, quite interlinked, but um, can you just give us a sense of um, the outlook for the commodities? Definitely. We are, by and large, constructive on the outlook for commodities. When you look at dynamics on the supply side of the equation, mm -hmm. not a lot has been invested in exploration and production of, say, oil and gas, of, say, uh, base metals in recent years, and we think supply is fairly tight. When you combine that with an analysis of demand uh, the situation, once again, China reopening, second largest economy in the world, consuming a lot more of uh, this, this basic, basic item. So uh, we think the price outlook is supportive. And if you add to that some secular considerations, mm -hmm. we've talked about us entering the era of security, a geopolitically more complex world in which companies and countries are putting more emphasis on energy security, food security, financial security. Think about all the increased purchase of central banks, uh, of, of gold by central banks in, yeah. in the last few months. So when you put all this together, we think it's a, it's a solid asset class uh, to once again add into portfolio diversification. Great, thanks very much. Um, so that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you once again to Nadia, Alejo and Dan for your insights. And of course, thank you to all of our clients that turned in. I hope we are able to make sense of this challenging and uh, often confusing backdrop for you. And as always, uh, we hope you continue the conversation with your UBS financial advisor. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Investing in an alternative investment fund is speculative and involves significant risks. For a discussion on these risks, please visit UBS.com slash CIO dash disclaimer dash NTA. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.